Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, happy Friday, friends. Good afternoon. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. Thanks for being with us uh, here as we head into the weekend. We had a lot to get to today. 403-974-8255. But want to begin this afternoon with a pretty significant and fascinating scientific discovery that was announced yesterday. Uh, Another example, the second we have of seeing what was once maybe thought to be unseeable. Uh, In this case, another black hole. It's long been theorized that at the center of our own galaxy lies a monster black hole, about four million times the mass of our sun. Now, there are obviously ways of, of tracking and trying to isolate black holes where they are. Obviously, Einstein laid the, the groundwork for understanding what black holes were in the first place. But could we ever see one? Now, the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration gave us our first look at a black hole a couple of years ago. Uh, and that one's even bigger. Uh, fortunately, that one's even further away uh, in a different galaxy. But this one, Sagittarius A-star is uh, in our neighborhood, so to speak. I mean, it's 27,000 light years away. Uh, But once again, we have an image captured of a black hole. This one confirming that theory that indeed that is what lies at the center of our own Milky Way galaxy. Joining us to talk about this announcement, the significance of it, very pleased to welcome the program here today, someone who was on hand for that announcement yesterday, Avery Broderick, Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy, University of Waterloo, and a Research Associate at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics, Dr. Broderick, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Happy to be here with you again, Rob. Well, I appreciate it. It's been a a wild few days for you, obviously. Uh, But quite a historic announcement. You were on hand for it yesterday. Just let me get your thoughts on on how big this was. Oh, it's it's magnificent for us. You know, um, there's no greater advance in science than going from one to two, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, One might be an accident, might be a fluke, might be a chance happenstance, but two is a uh, confirmation, is a comparison, and in this case, an especially useful contrast, because these two black holes are about as far far apart as you could be on the astronomical spectrum. And so seeing uh, what is the same between them, seeing that shadow, uh, that's that's just uh, kind of trippy stuff for us. Prior to this, what did we know about Sagittarius A-star, which I, I guess is how we pronounce it. It sort of looks like it's A with an asterisk, but I think we call it Sagittarius A-star. So what, what did we know about it? Yeah, so, so we, what we knew about it actually came from observing the, uh, the massive bodies around it, observing uh, stars orbiting it. So in the same way that you might uh, weigh the sun using the orbits of the planets, uh, Andrea Ghez and Reinhard Genzel and, and their um, collections of collaborators have been watching for two decades stars moving at uh, something like 1% the speed of light, zipping around this dark mass that uh, had only a very, very faint infrared signature. Um, and, and from that, they were able to nail the mass down. You mentioned 4 million mm-hmm. uh, in your introduction, and, and that's where that number comes from, 4 million suns. So if you can imagine that... Yeah. There was this four million sun dark mass, less bright than all of the stars in the vicinity, uh, and we knew it was there. It was betrayed by the, uh, the the motion of those stars. 
obviously you need a pretty big and a pretty powerful telescope to to see this and the event horizon telescope collaboration kind of gives us that it, it creates that tell us a bit more about this collaboration yeah, so this is this is a truly global project. Uh, we we make an Earth-sized telescope, and we do that by combining individual telescopes from around the Earth that together can do this extraordinary trick of of uh, approximating or synthesizing into something that really is an Earth-sized Earth-sized telescope without, of course, you know, putting everybody in the shade, and uh, you know that. That means that we have to have people all over the globe, you know. So, so my joke was, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we just went from Zoom calls in our offices to Zoom calls in our kitchen. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but that's, you know, that's how we do it. That's the trick is to take telescopes on either side of the planet and uh, mix and match them together in a special way, completing, completing the telescope process on big computers um, to, to generate the highest resolution images ever produced in astronomy yeah and it's remarkable to see this and to just you know come to you know to grasp what it is we are seeing and you, you mentioned so the the black hole in the uh, messier 87 galaxy which is a lot larger than our own monster here in our galaxy but we do see similarities like the pictures are, are similar like the, the donut shape what are the, yeah. the differences and the, the similarities here yeah so so uh, m87 messier 87 uh, that's that's a heavyweight, uh, mm-hmm. even amongst supermassive black holes, six and a half billion suns, and it lives at the heart of a supercluster. It's being fed and and generating outflows. It's kind of the paradoxical nature of astronomical black holes, even though they're the perfect prisons. You know, you, at event horizon, when you cross, people stop responding to your tweets. Um, but they're able, nevertheless, to power the most energetic and uh, brightest events in the universe. And M87 is a good example of that. And in contrast, Sag J star is a featherweight. And that's probably the only context in which you'll hear anybody refer to <laughs> yeah. something that's 4 million solar masses as a featherweight. But it's 1,500 times lighter. And it's starved. It's not producing much of anything. It's not even as bright as a bright star. Uh, and, and yet... You know, despite being as different as you possibly could astronomically, um, when you look at that shadow, it looks almost identical mm-hmm. to M87s. So you have that dark shadow in the center, that event horizon silhouetted against the surrounding luminous plasma, right? And it's, uh, to me, I mean, it's just striking what's the same, you know, even though we have such different uh, uh, astronomical environments. So this adds to our, our understanding, or at least adds to the, the thinking that this is a common feature of galaxies, to have a supermassive black hole sort of at the center. So what, what would be the reason for that? What, what is the cause of, of having these, these black holes and sort of at the center of, of galaxies? Well, that's, that's one of the great mysteries and, and something that hopefully we will, we will be contributing to as we better understand how black holes form, how they grow, especially because these supermassive objects we know have to have a slightly different story than the, than the black holes that are produced as the endpoints of massive stars that uh, the gravitational wave experiments like LIGO have been seeing. So there is, a, there is a mystery there, and that's a great question. Why does every galaxy seem to have one of these supermassive monsters? And, and somehow the supermassive monster knows about its galaxy. Bigger galaxies have bigger supermassive black holes. Smaller galaxies have smaller supermassive black holes. 
And, uh, you know, for, for a long time, people thought maybe this was because a bigger galaxy can support a bigger central, central monster. But, you know, as, as of about 30 years ago, it became clear that those central black holes, they were not passive observers. They were, they were drivers. And, and uh, one of the big stories of the past three decades has been the recognition that even though these black holes, as massive as they are, comprise a tiny fraction of their galaxy's total mass, yeah. can nevertheless rule its fate. And this all comes together in an answer to this question that, you know, we're still trying to put together. As you alluded to, I mean, ours here in this galaxy, it's, it maybe doesn't have as much to, to feed on. It's being starved a little bit. I mean, you know, do, do black holes ever really stay static? Are they either growing or, or shrinking? Uh, well, so, so black holes in the current universe are almost always growing. Even our black holes is growing, but uh, at an exceedingly slow pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to grow faster. So you can, you can look out above and below our galaxy, and there are these large lobes of gamma ray emission. And uh, these were just discovered um, in the past decade, and they uh, betray about a million years ago a period of activity where uh, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way was blasting out huge amounts of energy. So they can't get active. And that was just a million years ago. Mm -hmm. So where where do things go from here? I mean, we, we can obviously try to find more black holes, but there's a lot more still to learn about the two we've already managed to get a look at, including the one that's that's more or less in our neighborhood here. Well, one of the fortunate elements of the Event Horizon Telescope is our two primary targets, M87 and Sagittarius A star, you know, they change on, on very short timescales, very human timescales. In fact, Sagittarius A star, one of the chief problems in getting to this image was contending with the fact that it presents a completely different face every 15 minutes. All the plasma orbits around and redistributes the uh, luminous ring every 15 minutes, so it's hard to add the data up over a night. But it also means that we can come back year after year. And as we do that, we can begin to separate the ephemeral astrophysical elements of it uh, from the essential gravitational elements. And by doing that study, the gravitational physics of black holes... Fascinating stuff. Much more on all of this inside the perimeter.ca. Some great background uh, on this uh, announcement, this discovery. Dr. Broderick, thanks again for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the insight. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, that is Avery Broderick, Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Waterloo. He's a research associate at the uh, Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. Inside the perimeter.ca, you can read a bit more about this black hole in our backyard and what it basically looks like, which is pretty wild because, you know, just a couple of decades ago even, this was still like the the domain of theoretical physics. Like black holes probably exist, and here's all the equations as to, you know, why we think that is. Now, you know, what was theoretical is now observable. Like, sure, there are black holes. Here's two of them. Here's what they look like. It's pretty crazy. An important decision by the Supreme Court of Canada that specifically deals with Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, but maybe in a broader sense, speaks to uh, the question of whether the court is interested in protecting individual rights and individual liberties. So the, the ramifications from this could be significant. More specifically, though, the Supreme Court of Canada today struck down 
declared unconstitutional section 33.1 of the criminal code. Now, this was something introduced by the federal government in reaction to a previous case that basically said you cannot use the defense of extreme intoxication when it came to uh, being charged with uh, certain violent crimes. And it does raise an interesting question. If you are responsible for your own intoxication, can you credibly make an argument that you were too intoxicated to understand what you were doing? Can that be a defense against criminal charges? So the court today in striking that down is basically saying yes, and it restores the acquittal of a Calgary man in a separate case. So joining us to talk about uh, the implications, the importance uh, of this decision today, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Stephen Penny, professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Also wrote an interesting piece about some of these issues recently at thehub.ca. Professor Penny, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, happy to be with you, Rob. Were you anticipating uh, the court going this way, or, or was it, uh, in your view, kind of uh, up in the air? Well, it was up in the air. I mean, if you put a gun to my head and asked me to predict, I would have predicted uh, at least a majority of the court in favor of striking down this provision of the criminal code. Uh, but I, I was not especially confident that that was uh, inevitable. Uh, but I'm pleased to see that uh, we have a unanimous decision here striking down this legislation. So how did we get to this point? Well, it's a, it's a long and kind of circuitous uh, yeah. journey, but uh, the short version of the story is that the, the common law position, so the position that most courts in you know, the Commonwealth jurisdictions, including the UK and Canada and, and others, had made a distinction between two types of offenses. So you have offenses like murder on the one hand, where there's a, a very specific and fairly sophisticated form of intent that the prosecution has to prove. So in the case of murder, an intent to kill. And it has been the case for over a century that any evidence of intoxication can be considered. It's not determinative, but it can at least be considered by the court in deciding whether or not the accused formed that intent to kill. And if there was a reasonable doubt on that question, then the person would be usually convicted of a lesser offense. In the case of murder, it would be manslaughter. Then there was another category of offenses, including violent offenses like assault and sexual assault, for which uh, the rule was, at common law, that you can't even consider evidence of intoxication, no matter how compelling it may have been that someone who made a deliberate choice to become intoxicated by drugs or alcohol, sort of lost an ability to understand what they were doing, were not, not aware of what they were doing, it didn't matter. The, the judge or the jury were told they could not consider that evidence at all. And so you essentially had to assume that that person was sober, even if the evidence indicated to the contrary. So for those types of cases, the argument that you were too drunk or too high to know what you were doing and therefore shouldn't be convicted, that went out the window. Then in 1992, the Supreme Court of Canada said that that rule, that common law rule that had been created by judges so long ago, was unconstitutional. And it violated a principle of fundamental justice that uh, is enshrined in Section 7 of our Charter of Rights. And that principle is that the, the Crown, the prosecution, always has to show some level of voluntariness uh, or a basic intent to understand what you're doing in order to be deserving of criminal liability. And, and because this common law rule did away with that principle, that violated the Charter. And then very soon after, Parliament intervened and enacted Section 33.1 of the Criminal Code, and that essentially reversed Davio. It said that anyone 
who become so intoxicated that they're not aware of what they're doing. They be, become sort of you know, delusional or they lose conscious control of their actions, uh, that they cannot be acquitted for any violent crime. And so you could no longer use the so-called extreme intoxication defense for any of these violent crimes like assault or sexual assault. And now the Supreme Court of Canada today has returned us to the position that we were in before Section 33.1 was enacted, which means that at least in very, very rare instances where an accused person can prove that he or she had no idea what they were doing, uh, that that person can potentially be acquitted of one of these offenses. And just to be clear, and I, I'm, a few people have been asking me this today, and I'm, I'm seeing some of the text, that this doesn't have any impact on, on the impaired driving laws in the criminal code. Absolutely not. No, the, the courts have held for a very long time that the fact that you become you know, intoxicated deliberately, uh, that cannot serve as a defense to impaired driving. So that's, that's not an issue with this. It's really only a concern for the kinds of you know, violent crimes that I mentioned, like assault and sexual assault and, and various uh, variations on, on those offenses. Now, and this was something that, that I believe you addressed, because there, there is still room here maybe for Parliament to, to come back with some kind of a charge, like criminal intoxication, essentially, that, that there's still some room to legislate here. Absolutely, and I think the court was very careful to, to point that out. And this idea has been around for a very long time. And uh, it was even mentioned back in that you know, 1990s decision, the, the Davio case. And the idea here is that now, I think many of us have an in- intuition that people who become sort of dangerously intoxicated by drugs or alcohol, where they, they know the effect is going to be pretty profound, and, and perhaps they even have some level of awareness or should have had some level of awareness that they might become violent or dangerous or to lose control as a result of putting themselves in that state, that there's a, a level of culpability, sort of blame, moral blame that comes with that that might be justly deserving of being criminalized. But the problem was that Parliament didn't take that route back in in 1994. Instead, it decided to simply say that we're going to pretend that you knew what you were doing when you didn't, and we're going to convict you of the same crime, say it's sexual assault or assault, uh, even though you didn't know what you were doing. And that violates this fundamental principle of justice, that there ought to be some link or proportionality between the culpability, the blameworthiness of the offender and the offense, and the actual conviction and punishment that is imposed. So, for example, in the case uh, arising out of Calgary, the Brown case that was decided today, you had someone who did something that was perhaps a bit, you know, reckless or, or less than um, in, entirely intelligent. You know, he, he, he drank a fair bit, and then he, I think, I think he did anyway, but he, he had magic mushrooms, so he was affected by the active ingredient in that psilocybin. But then he had an absolutely extraordinarily rare an unusual and, and, you know, extreme response to that. So he attacked this, you know, defenseless person mm-hmm. who he had no interaction with previously. He was a complete stranger to him. He had absolutely no motivation to do this. And, of course, it was, you know, a, a tragedy for that individual, and it, you know, a great deal of harm was done. But he had absolutely no conscious awareness of what he was doing. So in these very rare cases, right, where you have someone who does something that, you know, normally would not present any significant risk to society or a risk of harm to others. And something goes haywire, and all of a sudden they find themselves charged with a very, very serious offense. Uh, and that is where the Supreme Court of Canada said that we can deal with this in a much more nuanced and precise and sophisticated way. And if Parliament chooses to, to employ that option, then it's likely to survive 
a constitutional challenge, but this wasn't the way to do it. It was overbroad uh, and simplistic. So there's still a high bar for a successful use of this defense. Like someone who intends to commit an assault could not avoid charges by deliberately becoming intoxicated before carrying out the assault they originally intended to carry out. Like it's not a get out of jail free card. There, there is a threshold here. Absolutely. And, and in fact, we do something that's fairly unusual in the criminal law here. We actually put the burden on the accused to prove this defense, mm-hmm. which is not the normal way we do things. We require the prosecution to prove you know, all of the what we call the elements of the offense beyond any reasonable doubt. And so this is an exception to that, where we actually tell the accused, listen, if you want to rely on this so-called extreme intoxication defense, you're going to have to convince us that's more likely than not that due to the effects of drugs and alcohol, you had absolutely a no awareness of what you were doing. And in the vast majority of cases where people uh, get drunk or get high and they commit acts of violence, it's not very difficult for the prosecution to prove that they were aware of what they were doing because the basic intent or voluntariness that goes along with offenses like assault and sexual assault is extremely minimal, right? It all, all it requires is to show that you were aware of sort of the physical consequences of what you were doing. You had some, there was some connection between mind and body. So the idea that you were, you know, uninhibited or you became more impulsive or you became more angry or violent because you did drugs or alcohol, that's not going to fly and that's not going to serve as an excuse. And, and so there's really no concern that the people are going to be able to get away with domestic violence or, or sexual violence as a result of, you know, the decision to become intoxicated, in my view. Now, there's also the broader issue because, you know, we, we just marked the 40th anniversary of the Charter, and, you know, there's been a lot of cases I, I think we can point to that sort of give us an indication of the impact of the Charter, how the courts, you know, we're, we're going to make use of this authority and in interpreting the Charter and applying it to individual rights. To what extent does this case help us understand those bigger questions? Well, I think this case is a a strong indication. It's just one case among many, of course, Um, but I think it's a strong indication that the Supreme Court is is still committed, for the most part, to upholding some of the most basic principles that we have in our sort of constitutional liberal democracy. We're always trying to find a balance between allowing the majority of people to express their preferences to their elected representatives and have policies and laws that try to do, you know, that are in the common good and that try to serve the public interest as the majority um, sort of sees that common interest. But we also have a very strong tradition going back much longer than, you know, 1982 when we passed our charter, but certainly accentuated since that time, that seeks to protect individual freedoms and fundamental individual rights from some of the excesses of, you know, the majority. Right? And I think there was a response to that initial Davio decision from the 1992 by the public. In, in part, I think it was misinformed, but in part it was this intuition that people shouldn't be, get away, you know, be allowed to get away with committing violent crimes because they did something that's maybe socially irresponsible. Mm-hmm. But at some point, I think you know, unelected judges who are applying the rule of law, protecting individual liberty and the, the rights that are set out in the Charter, have to take a bit of a stand, you know, at least to some extent, to protect the rights of the individual accused person from the perhaps excesses of the criminal law and the excesses of a kind of, you know, majority sentiment uh, that, uh, you know, ultimately I think comes from an illiberal place, right? So that's that balance between representative democracy uh, and protection of individual rights that always has to be kept in mind. And I think this decision is a signal that uh, the Supreme Court of Canada is still in a reasonably good place 
on that issue. Very interesting. Well, as mentioned, you wrote a piece about some of these issues for The Hub, thehub.ca, a few weeks ago. Folks can find that piece there. Uh, Stephen Penning, appreciate the insight here this afternoon. Thanks so much for making some time for us. You're very welcome. All the best. Uh, Stephen Penny, professor of law at the University of Alberta. He's um, got some thoughts, obviously, on the implications of, of this case, sort of the specifics of this, and, and the broader question of, you know, liberalism versus democracy in, in the constitutional sense. So here we had Parliament very clearly bringing this law, adding this to the criminal code, and the court today saying that is unconstitutional. I want to take a look in on an important debate unfolding in Quebec around language and language rights. And I think, you know, for the most part, Canadians recognize uh, the uniqueness of Quebec and the importance of preserving and protecting the French language and the use of the French language in Quebec. But often that has manifested itself in unusual and controversial ways. Now, for example, I remember we, we did a segment on this where there was a big pushback against the use of the phrase bonjour, hi, which is apparently a very common greeting in, in Montreal. But this goes much further. And, and Bill 96 which is the subject of a great deal of controversy, is certainly seen as a serious infringement on minority language rights in Quebec. Bill 96 is ostensibly about protecting the French language. But the burden it imposes on non-Francophones is considerable. As I mentioned, the requirement that doctors communicate with patients in French, pretty much across the board. Or the contracts, numerous uh, forms of contracts in Quebec are going to have to be in French. There are going to be caps on English language schools, additional French requirements for English, uh, English language students. So this is certainly seen by many as, as an attack on Anglophone rights in Quebec. So what are the concerns around Bill 96? Where, where is that balance between protecting the French language and, and protecting minority language rights in that province. Well, joining us for some thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Alison Haynes, who's a columnist for the Montreal Gazette, montrealgazette.com. She's been obviously writing a lot about the Bill 96 issue. Alison, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in terms of this uh, you know, eventually becoming law, how far down this, this path are we? Where are things at with this legislation, first of all? Well, we're, we're, the, we're at... The second to last step occurred yesterday where the uh, bill came back from committee hearings with a slew of amendments. So it's on to the final stage of adoption, and we expect that before the legislature rises in June, um, but more likely uh, before the end of May. So it's it's pretty much a fait accompli. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, look, this, this is pretty far-reaching legislation. I mean, I, I touched on some of what it intends to do, but that might just be skimming the surface. What, what do you, uh, those outside of Quebec need to know about this legislation? Well, I think the most, um, uh, the most difficult parts to swallow are really that it, it's, it changes. It's, it's a bill that, first of all, it invokes the notwithstanding clause off the top. So everything in it is, is enshrined, um, is, is automatically protected from legal challenges. It also places the Charter of the French Language above the Quebec and, uh, and the Quebec and Canadian Human Rights Charter. And it basically enshrines, uh, French as the only language of Quebec. So those things, those, that's, that's just the preamble. And it's always been the devils in the details in terms of what the effects of all this will be. But these are pretty far reaching, um, 
This is, this is far-reaching legislation and basically enshrines collective rights above minority and individual rights, which and and then puts up a shield to stop people from or stop the courts from from hearing challenges of it because Bill 101, which is um, the landmark legislation from the 1970s, that the first the first French language um, protections that were put in place. It was vigorously challenged in courts, and it was it was modified over the years based on judicial decisions, based on you know rights challenges, and it's like they don't want that to happen this time. The government is sort of bulletproofing it from the start. Right. So I think off right off the top, it's it's a it's a far-reaching piece of legislation that there's not much that can be done about it. What is the justification? Why does the government believe this is needed? Well, if you if you listen to the debate that's been going on in Quebec for years, it's that French is under threat. And indeed, French, you know, the fact that it survived in so it, it survived in such a in the sea of North American English, mm-hmm. um, you know, speaks to its strength. And it does need protections to do that, just in terms of sheer exposure to English and you know social social media and media and culture. All, there's English all around, um, but the extent to which it's actually under threat is is a matter of debate, and it depends on who you speak to. There are the sky is falling um, analysts who will yeah. say, you know, they'll look at the number of immigrants coming, the number of anglophones coming, how how much more English is being spoken in the workplace, and they'll say the sky is falling, we need to do something. And then you'll look at other indicators or look at more nuanced indicators, and they'll say, well, actually immigrant children who come to Quebec have been forced since the 1970s under Bill 101 to go to school in French, and many of them are bilingual, and Quebec businesses are shining on the world stage, so it's not that people are being forced to speak English at work, it's francophones and anglophones and allophones, um, which is people speak more different languages other than English and French, and probably in addition to English and French, uh, are are just speaking more English because it's the language of business outside of Quebec. So there there's different um, viewpoints on how threatened French is, uh, but the government seems to think it's desperately under threat and that it needs extraordinary protections to guarantee its vitality in the future. Yeah. Well, I mean, extraordinary is one way to describe this. Now, you know, it's one thing to talk about language rights, but, you know, there's a concern that this could have some, you know, real life implications for people. I mean, you know, doctors uh, groups in Quebec have, you know, even raised the prospect that this could endanger patients' lives because of this, you know, requirement to speak to patients in French. Yeah. So, at the very beginning of the legislation being tabled, there was um, a clause that made it seem like health and social services, which has always been exempt from the Charter of the French language for you know obvious reasons, the reasons you just mentioned, um, would be that access to English services would be limited to quote unquote historic Anglo's, and basically that means people who have a right to service a historic right to services in English. Basically, they were going to determine it by if you have, if you are eligible for English education, if you have an English eligibility certificate or your children do, that's going to determine whether you're allowed to seek medical care in French. And that 
obviously doctors of all languages have been warning this is a terrible idea because it could exclude a lot of newcomers. It could exclude a lot of seniors who, you know, went to school before there was such a thing as eligibility certificates in the 70s. It could um, put a lot of vulnerable people at risk. So there have been some modifications as to um, amendments tabled in the bill as to to perhaps lessen the blow of that, but it's still a little bit unclear. It's a, it's a complex piece of legislation because it modifi- modifies other pieces of many other pieces of legislation. So when you're reading it, it it's you kind of have to refer to multiple bills at the same time, and the um, and and the implications even from the very beginning, day one when they tabled Bill 96, it wasn't it wasn't clear what it would do, and it took some very um, detailed and and rigorous analysis by some community groups and legal experts to really spell out what are what are the the repercussions of this bill and and really it's on um anglophones and and allophones minority communities um who whose rights are going to be infringed and i think that's what um many anglophones and and allophones and immigrants and basically minorities in quebec feel that this legislation um, is punitive towards them. It's not. Um, it's not promoting French so much as it's punishing those who don't speak French or are not francophones. Let's put it that way. Because many people, many many people do speak French in Quebec. Many anglophones uh, speak French in Quebec and speak it well. And and certainly many um, allophones and newcomers who have to go to school in French speak it and very well too so it's it's the punitive nature of it that it's you know limiting the rights of minorities to protect the rights protect the vitality of french for the majority and and that's sort of um that's sort of the crux of where we're at and why there's there's yeah. so much uh, backlash to it among minorities but interestingly enough most francophones take it not all but most take it as orthodoxy that french needs protection whatever the government's doing to do that is is the right thing. And there hasn't been a lot of debate in the French media or among um, French speaking groups about the overarching implications of the broad um, strokes of this bill. There's been sort of some grumbling about some of the, the details uh, on business community or the, the judicial system, for instance. And, and, but there hasn't been a big outcry among um, Quebec francophones that, you know, we don't need to do this or this is unnecessary. They just, it's, kind of accepted which is why the legislation is is going to pass yeah but it, it's, it really sows division doesn't it and it's something you touched on in, in you know your <laughs> column earlier this week and it sort of pits you know groups against each other and obviously uh, anglophones uh, care about the french language it, you know being against this bill isn't being against the french language but it no, it no. feels like you know the government's setting it up to be perceived that way yeah, well, sometimes it's easier to divide than it is to unite. And, and even some of the, the business groups um, who testified at the hearings, and there's, there's been a few voices in the last week in the, in the French media saying, well, you know, pun- punishing uh, anglophones for, or newcomers who, who don't speak French very well from getting medical care in French, like that's that's not really what this is about. We need to educate people. We also need to educate francophones. One of the big business leaders, the, de, the head of the Conseil de Patronat, um, said that a bigger problem is the illiteracy rate among among some French speakers and that that needs to be tackled so that, you know, French is spoken well and, and, and is vital among francophones. Like, that's not to say, obviously, that it, it, that 
you know, people don't speak French well. It's just to say that there's there's a bigger problem of of knowledge of the French language, even within the Francophone community, that needs to be addressed so that Quebec can reach its full potential and the French language can reach its full potential too. So, sure, there's there's Anglophones may not speak quite as well as Francophones, surely, but uh, but people are learning. Kids are going to school. There's there's a certain percentage of the Anglophone population who sends their kids to to French school if they have eligibility. Um, for English school, or they they do elementary in French and high school in English, or vice versa. Um, but choice is being taken away as well. The Bill 101 applies to primary and secondary school, but um, when it comes, so all francophones, all uh, allophones, and and immigrants, and only people who have this historic right to attend, this grandfathered right to attend English school can do so, but when you get to the college level, CEGEP or university, there's this choice. Well, now they're kind of they didn't extend Bill 101 to the CEGEP level, which is what uh, the Parti Québécois was advocating, so even stronger legislation. But they did um, kind of put new uh, requirements in place. So if you go to, if you're a, a francophone or an allophone and you go to college in in English, which is still your choice to do, they're capping enrollment so that only a certain percentage of students will be able to go there. And then when they're there, they have to take more courses in French. So now uh, English-speaking sages have to figure out how to offer more French courses when there's a, a shortage of French teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Anglophone students will have to, at the college level will have to either take three courses in French, three core program courses in French, or they'll have to take three additional French language courses. So, you know, that that was some last-minute horse trading as well. So there, there's lots of implications that are just coming out of the woodwork even at the last minute. This bill had, you know, hundreds of clauses and it's got almost as many amendments. So the the fallout is still sort of being examined. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll continue to follow this uh, much more at MontrealGazette.com. Allison, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All the best. Allison Haynes is a columnist uh, with the Montreal Gazette, MontrealGazette.com. Uh, so she had a piece earlier this week talking about how, you know, the peace in Quebec is being shattered here with Bill 96. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.